0: Welcome to Wild West Podcast, where fact and legend merge. The Wild West Podcast presents the true accounts of individuals who settled in a town built out of hunger for money, regulated by fast guns who walked on both sides of the law, patrolling, investing in, and regulating the brothels, saloons, and gambling houses. These are the stories of the men who made the history of the Old West come alive, bringing with them the birth of legends brought to order by a six-gun, and laid to rest with their boots on. Join us now as we take you back in history to the legends of the Wild West. My name is William Masterson. Most people know me as B.A.T., My story takes place in 1874 when hired on as a freighter, and I wanted to avoid another winter on the plains as a buffalo hunter. I'd been hunting buffalo in the Texas Panhandle when the Red River War broke out. I can say that the buffalo hunters in this area were much the cause of this war. Our team of hunters became involved in an Indian dispute at Adobe Walls. The Adobe Walls establishment upset the Indians and they wanted us out of the area. I was at the Adobe Walls settlement when 700 Comanche, Cheyenne, Kiowa, and Arapaho warriors, led by Comanche Chief Quanah Parker, attacked our buffalo camp. There were 28 of us, most with sharps rifles, who took refuge in two stores and a saloon. Despite being dramatically outnumbered, we repelled the Indian assault with our superior weapons. After four days of continuous battle, we received reinforcement and the Indians soon retreated. After the Battle of Adobe Walls, I signed up as an Indian Scout, and then hired on as a Teamster at Camp Supply. My job as a Teamster was to help freight tons of provisions required by the Indian Territory Expedition, organized by Colonel Nelson A. Miles out of Fort Dodge. On October 1st, 1874, our Teamsters started a transit between Fort Dodge and Camp Supply. We delivered more than 450,000 pounds of rations, ammunition, clothing, and grain to support troops in the field. These supply trains were formed at Fort Dodge, and we moved south under military escort to Fort Supply. At the time, Miles was given command of eight companies of the 6th Cavalry and four companies of the 5th Cavalry with orders to subdue the hostiles operating in Indian Territory and the Texas Panhandle. It was in December when Miles gave orders to establish a fort cantonment along Sweetwater Creek in the Texas Panhandle. The freighting outfit I worked for was to move a significant amount of supplies from Fort Supply to this area. Camp Supply was in full preparation of loading supplies into freighters when a small detachment of the 6th Cavalry arrived on December 15, 1874. The squad of 18 men and one officer had been assigned to protect our wagon load of provisions from Indian attacks along the trail. A Corporal Melvin King, who did not fare well with the men, accompanied the detachment. The night before we pulled out, the men of the expedition sat together in the mess hall, enjoying our meal, when Corporal King swaggered into the room. King, who carried a dark brow and a forbidding mouth, wanted everyone to notice his presence as he looked around the room with his cautious blue eyes. The five and a half foot brown haired soldier pulled up a table and sat with a few men from his unit. He was just an earshot away from Billy Dixon and I. King began his conversation by demanding the bread off the plate of a younger soldier sitting at his table. King told the man he was once a sergeant until the army disapproved of some of his actions. King boasted on how he enlisted in the 16th Infantry during the Civil War and was on duty for the reconstruction in Georgia. He said his regiment was near Macon, Georgia in August of 1867 when he took a shot at a dog crossing the road. "'I missed that damned old dog and hit a fellow soldier in the foot,' laughed King. "'The commanding officer had me arrested on account I shot at the dog without being given orders.'" They put me up on a charge stating that my conduct was prejudicial to good order and military discipline. The table, now silent with discontent over King's rude and boisterous manners, turned to enjoy their meal when King's voice began to dominate the mess hall. "'Well, at my court-martial, they decided to acquit my charges because I was such a good fighting man,' King boasted. "'They did find me guilty of the facts, as stated,' but decided not to attach any criminality to my actions. King stated as he reached over and pulled a piece of pork from another man's plate. After hearing King's last statement, I thought to myself, the more I heard King's voice, the more I felt like the world was slowly disappearing in front of me. I knew in this instance I had found a dislike for this man. The more he boasted, I could feel my heart hitting my chest. Billy, sitting next to me, let out a smile and whispered over to me. A man like that is sure to perish in his self-worth. His mouth gives him the presence of a less confident man who relishes on the goodwill of army courtesy. If he were in my backwoods, I would have already laid a knife to him. Wild West Podcast is now offering digital books of our most popular stories. On sale now at the iBooks store, Early Gamblers of Dodge City. To find out how you can order a book, go to boothillproductions.com and select Publications. Now back to our story. The sky was dark and the wind was cold the morning of December 16, 1874, when our mule team of freighters pulled out of camp supply. Our wagons, 106 in all, were to haul supplies to a new outpost. The outpost, located south of the Canadian River, was to become a military cantonment. The supplies for the cantonment had to be first shipped by rail to Fort Dodge, then freighted to Fort Supply. I was helping load the wagons when I witnessed Corporal King stumble out of the stables. He was trying to mount his horse with a whiskey bottle in one hand. The horse took a few spins before he could mount. I could not help but notice the three soldiers who were running in his direction. King looked over at the three soldiers who were pursuing him and shouted, "'Not today, boys!' King's horse spun once more. "'I'm headed to Abilene!' King shouted. King spurred his horse, and with one toss of the reins, his horse picked up speed and dashed toward the gates of the fort, yelping his way out on the prairie. Billy told me later that King was not part of the escort detachment assigned to our supply train. Billy told me he was being run off the fort, for King had been discharged in October and was planning on re-enlisting after he sowed some oats. The travel along the Jones and Plummer Trail to our location on Sweetwater Creek was slow. The cold winds blew hard across the prairie as a noticeable storm brewed on the horizon. My wagon was assigned to lead the expedition. From my freighter, I could see Billy Dixon out in front about 300 yards. Billy was appointed as one of the scouts for this expedition. At that moment, I thought back to the first time I became acquainted with Billy Dixon. It was on the Buffalo Range in the fall of 1872. We were at Adobe Walls together, and then served under Miles as Indian scouts in 1874. Billy Dixon was a typical frontiersman of the highest order. The perils and hardships of border life were precisely suited to his stoic and collected nature. This did not mean that Billy was not kind hearted. He was a generous and hospitable man, for he possessed all these admirable qualities to a high degree, but he was calm, calculating, and uncommunicative at times. Billy was one of the best shots with a rifle on the plains. He could outshoot me in a day's end. I remember the time when all the hunters waited for the arrival of the buffalo at Adobe Walls. We were bored and had to amuse ourselves with horse races, card games, and shooting matches. While I was able to take some of the money, Billy Dixon generally took down all the money in the rifle chutes. During September, the Indian engagements were far between and the Army had little to do. It was during this time that Dixon and I were kept busy scouring the region for signs of Indian movement guiding small detachments to outposts and carrying dispatches to Camp Supply. It was on one of those missions that Billy Dixon, Amos Chapman, and four enlisted men engaged a band of 125 Kiowas and Comanches in what became known as the Buffalo Wallow Fight. It was on September 10, 1874, when our command, led by Colonel Miles, was running short of rations. Miles gathered two scouts one of them being Billy Dixon and the other by the name of Amos Chapman. The two scouts, Chapman and Dixon along with the four enlisted men, left our camp on McClellan Creek to look for the delayed supply train. Billy told me later that the six-man contingent set out on the trail to Fort Supply deep into Indian Territory. It was on the morning of September 12th when they had approached the divide between Gageby Creek and the Washita River. Cageby Creek is where Nixon and five others found all the prairie grass smoldering from a prairie fire. Nixon told me he became suspicious, and they decided to dismount their horses to use as cover, and eased out over the plains. Out of nowhere, a shot rang out, and one of the enlisted men, George Smith, fell with a bullet through his lungs. The horses then stampeded, carrying with them the men's haversacks, canteens, coats, and blankets. Billy told me how the mounted Indians indulged in a cat-and-mouse game with their intended victims by circling them and firing on a dead run. It was not long before the other enlisted men were struck by Indian fire. Billy said that was when Harrington and Woodhull fell. He looked over and noticed that Chapman was holding his left knee, shattered by a bullet. When the Indians discontinued their attack for a few minutes, Billy said he felt burn in his left calf. When he looked down, he noticed a small stream of blood pouring through a hole in the upper portion of his calf. The bullet had torn through the muscle, making a clean wound, with the bullet exiting out the lower calf muscle. With no cover in sight, Billy spotted a buffalo wallow a few yards away. He encouraged his companions to take shelter in a shallow depression, which was about ten feet in diameter. By noon, all except Chapman and Smith had reached the buffalo wallow safety. They eagerly dug a perimeter around the wallow with their hands and butcher knives, throwing up the sandy loam for better protection. In the process, the men managed to keep their enemies at a distance and away from Smith and Chapman. As the fight progressed, Billy said he tried several times to reach Chapman, but was forced back repeatedly by a hail of bullets and arrows. Since the disabled scout had lived as a squaw man among the Indians for a time and was known to many of the warriors present, They taunted him by shouting, "'Amos! Amos! We got you now, Amos!' Finally, early in the afternoon, Billy told me he had made it to Chapman and carried him back amid the gunfire to the safety of the wallow. As the day wore on, Billy expressed how the five men suffered terribly from hunger, thirst, and wounds, but their expert marksmanship continued to hold back the Indians. Late in the afternoon, an approaching thunderstorm brought relief to our thirst and served to break off the Indian attack. He said even though the Blue Northern quenched their thirst from the lost canteens, the storm caused them more suffering from the severe drop in temperature. Taking advantage of the lull in the battle, Peter Rath went to recover Smith's weapons and ammunition, and was astonished to find Smith still alive. Billy said Rath and he carried the unfortunate trooper back to their makeshift fortress, where he died later that night. At nightfall, the Indians vanished. Billy told me how he and Rath fashioned crude beds for themselves. They gathered and crushed tumbleweeds and made beds for everyone, including their wounded comrades. Afterward, Rath was to bring help, but was unable to locate the trail and returned in two hours. The following morning, September 13th, dawned clear with no Indians in sight. Billy said that he volunteered to go for help and found the trail less than a mile away. under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War. Who was his enemy of the United States? He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. Billy said when he looked out over the expanse of the trail, he saw a column of United States cavalry in the distance and fired his gun to attract their attention. As it turned out... This contingent consisted of four companies of the 8th Cavalry from Fort Union, New Mexico. The 225-man contingent was under the command of Major William R. Price. Price's appearance must have caused the Indians to withdraw from the wallow. Major Price told Billy that they found the supply wagons under attack by the same band of Indians. Price said the supply wagons were being escorted to Colonel Miles' camp. Billy told me every survivor of the attack was wounded. Chapman's wound was so severe that his leg was amputated. All received recommendations from Colonel Miles and awarded the Medal of Honor. The cold wind spurred up around me this time with a howl. The gust was so strong that it almost rocked me back over into the back of the wagon. The headwinds from the north now roared with fury as the cold air bit into my face and my duster flapped like a sail in the wind. I looked out in front of me. I could not see Billy. The dust kicked up and what followed was a sheet of ice so thick that it began to freeze on the mules. I looked ahead once again and saw a shadow of an image approaching my wagon. The snow and ice mixed in a miserable flurry. I could no longer see the first of the six mules in front of me when Billy pulled up the wagon beside shouting. We better turn back, he said, his wounds muffled from the winds. What did you say? Yelling back in Billy's direction. We better turn back, Billy repeated. Billy continued to yell over the strong wind. We're not going to make it through this storm. It was about 40 miles out from Fort Supply when the blizzard hit. The winds were so loud no one could speak. All we could hear was the raw power of the wind raging around our 106-mule train of wagons. Heavy sheets of ice fell from the dark skies, beating down on the canvas-covered wagons. It had been the fiercest storm that ever hit the land. The sheets of blowing ice began to thicken. The landmarks on the trail were no longer visible and became hidden behind the white that swirled so densely. The world had become erased around us and we would be with it if we didn't take shelter. Only a few wagons made it through to the new camp, and many animals perished in the storm. Wild West Podcast is now offering digital books of our most popular stories. On sale now at the iBooks store and Amazon Kindle is our most recent release of A Sportsman's Paradise, the Billy Dixon story. To find out how you can order a book, go to boothillproductions.com and select Publications. Now back to our story. After arriving at the Fort Cotonment about two miles northeast of a little settlement called Town, I found myself attached to an inactive scouting force. The Indians were idle and were licking their wounds on the reservation. There was little to do except for presenting myself to the paymaster. For the rest of the winter we were all hunkered down at the fort. Billy went back to Fort Supply in the spring of 1876 after surviving the snowstorm. Billy was on orders to take the 75 Cheyenne prisoners under escort to Fort Supply. There the prisoners would be sent to the Florida swamps. The Florida swamps were like death camps to the Plains Indians, for they were not accustomed to the humidity. I continued to draw my $35 a month and began venturing into Sweetwater to use my pay on some enjoyment. In the early summer of 1876, I decided to venture over to the general store owned by Charles Rath. Charles and I had become close friends during the time we spent together at Adobe Walls. I knew him first when selling hides to him in Dodge City, just before the buffalo moved out of the area. Rath had to abandon Adobe Walls' store in June of 74 when Quanah Parker and 700 of his warriors attacked us. Rath decided after the Red River War to move his business closer to a military post along the banks of Sweetwater Creek. I was hoping he would have a freighter job for me, and so I thought I might try my luck and asked him for a job. Upon my arrival at Rath's store and general merchandising, I noticed the business about the place was busy with fur traders and buffalo hunters. The store, located outside of Mobity was a destination point for the stagecoach, freight wagons, and buffalo skinners. Rath Store also supported the development of cattle ranches within a hundred mile radius by supplying staple crops. When I entered the establishment, I noticed a distinguished looking fellow dressed in a top hat dealing cards at a table in the back of the room. I always liked the game of cards, especially when there was money to be made. I crossed over the wooden planked floors where the gentleman sat dealing cards to a few of the roustabouts. I introduced myself as William Masterson, and he in turn said his name was Ben Thompson. Ben invited me to play a few rounds of cards as we enjoyed each other's company. Ben carried an English accent, stood about 5 feet 9 inches in height, and weighed in the neighborhood of 180 pounds. His face was pleasant to look upon and his head was round and well shaped. His black handlebar mustache was his most infamous feature, an attribute to his well-kept hair. He was what could be called a handsome man. Ben was neat in his dress, but not loud in appearance, and wore a little jewelry. The combination of his mustache size and English accent made him a very suitable gambler by profession. Ben confided in me how he had come out west after giving up the printing business in Austin, Texas, the place he was raised. He said he served in the Confederate Army during the Civil War. He journeyed into Mexico with the unfortunate Shelby Brigade and waged war under Maximilian until the Juaristas overpowered the Emperor, after which he escaped to the States and took up gambling as a profession. Ben stated he had first been in Abilene, where a no-good sheriff by the name of Hickok shot his partner, Phil Cole. He disclosed the time spent in Ellsworth, Kansas in the summer of 1873 with his brother Billy. He revealed how the town transpired into its heyday as a cattle shipping center. The Ellsworth story befell me as a solemn occurrence when Bill, his brother, became drunk and in the course of some difficulty with the police. Shotgun to death Sheriff Chauncey B. Whitney. Ben conveyed to me how, with some friendly Texans, backed up Billy and held off the town's irate citizens until his brother escaped. Ben expressed how he felt the emotional outcry of the citizens of Ellsworth bearing down on him after Whitney's death. He said he sensed the hostility brewing in every corner of the town and had a premonition he might soon become the victim of his brother's actions. So he decided to leave Ellsworth... "'and travel back to Kansas City. "'He mentioned two ladies of easy virtue "'who he and his brother entertained, "'and one of them just arrived in Mobity "'by the name of Molly Brennan. "'He said I should meet Molly, "'and that when she was in Ellsworth "'she had become one of the darlings of the dance halls, "'and how her services were in lofty demand. "'However, he proclaimed that Molly had become smitten "'by the color and fire of his reckless brother Billy, "'but that I should not be concerned about meeting Molly,' as his brother was now back in the hands of his wife, Alice Thompson. He conveyed in me how Alice had bankrolled enough earnings in Dodge City to purchase the Lady Gay Saloon in Mobity. The evening grew late with both card hands and balance, and he asked me if I would like to join him for a drink at the Lady Gay Saloon. I never saw Charles Rath, but I was glad to have my new acquaintance in Ben Thompson. That's it for now. Remember to check out our Wild West podcast shows on iTunes podcast or at wildwestpodcast.buzzsprout.com. We would like to conclude our show by reminding our listeners to check our up and coming digital bookstore by revisiting boothillproductions.com and select publications. Thanks for listening to our podcast. This podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons attribute, non-commercial licenses. You can learn more about the legends of Dodge City by visiting our website at worldfamousgunfighters.com or visit us at boothillproductions.com.